0: Amen. Well, last week my family and I we were driving to Alabama, and we have uh, started a new tradition in our car trip that we would listen to Narnia, The Chronicles of Narnia, as they come along. Now, many of you have probably done that. You've probably read the series of Chronicles of Narnia since you were little. My nana gave me my first box set when I was twelve, and so I've voraciously read them several times. And on our trip, we were actually going through the the Silver Chair. We got to go through the entire book on this trip because it was a really long car ride. And if you are familiar with the silver chair, or even if you're not, there's this constant waffling between hope, and despair where Aslan gave some specific signs for the kids to notice and to follow and when they failed to follow them there was this sense of despair oh my gosh we just messed it all up it's not going to happen but then there would be a moment of hope where they would say oh maybe it's still possible and there was this constant hope despair hope despair kind of feels like real life doesn't it? The silver chair can kind of define the way in which we see life because we can have moments of hope and we can have moments of despair. As we look at the the book of Ruth this morning, we're going to see the hope of redemption because we can, in fact, walk through life hope-filled in a hopeless world. We can, in fact, walk through life hope-filled in a hopeless world. We don't have to stay in the aspect of despair. Often it can be uh, because of our life circumstances or the situation that we find ourselves in that we can wallow or walk in or stay in despair. But there is a hope that we can walk through. And we can see that in Ruth 3. Ruth 3 answers this question, how can we walk in hope in a hopeless world? I hope you're wondering how in the world does Ruth 3 answer that question? I'm glad that you are wondering that because we will turn to the Word and we will see just how that is answered. Now, Pastor Mike was able to last week when he preached parcel out the particular portions of Ruth 2, but I'm going to read the entirety of Ruth 3 together. It is shorter than the other passages, but it's in in order to capture the full picture of what's going on. And I will also uh, try to emphasize specifically the, uh, the, the emphasis that the Hebrew language is giving in specific portions of this passage as well so that we're not just reading it to read it, but we're understanding the emphases that's going into it. So if you'd open your scriptures with me to read Ruth chapter 3, I'm reading from the ESV, so if you have a different version, it might sound or look a little bit different. But here's the word of the Lord. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women we, you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. He said, "'Who are you?' And she answered, "'I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you, you are a redeemer.' And he said, "'May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask.'" For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a Redeemer. Yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if He will redeem you, good, let Him do it. But if He is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid His feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Very interesting passage. In fact, Ruth 3 is the most debated passage of the entire book. The entire book is hinging upon this moment. It is the, the the hinge that changes all things. What will happen? What will Boaz really do? Will the other person redeem her, or will Boaz get the opportunity? There's a tension that the author brings, but also there's some some misunderstanding of what the innuendo or euphemisms are going on. The Hebrew language and the Hebrew culture is thick within this passage, and so many commentators have failed to really fully grasp what's happening and transpiring, and they've gone away from one aspect to the other, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment, but many people have over-sexualized this when it does not need to be. That is one of the failures of some of the commentators because they look at the Hebrew language and the Hebrew culture and they've missed the whole point. But Boaz did not. In this passage, we see how we can have hope in a hopeless world. And the first thing that we see, the first key to walking in hope is the key of open eyes. Open eyes open the heart to hope. Now, I want to take you quickly back to verse 20 in chapter 2, where Naomi begins to have her eyes opened to God's goodness. And it says this, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our Redeemers. Here in that passage in two twenty, Naomi begins to have open eyes to God's favor. If you remember in Ruth one, she said, "Call me Mara because I am bitter and life will never be good. God is only against me. God can't ever love me again." The has said the loving kindness of God can go to you, but it is closed off and done for me. But. When Ruth comes and shares the blessing of the refuge that Boaz brought about in chapter 2, Naomi begins to see God is doing something. She begins to have a deepening of recognizing the favor of God. God's favor was in that moment and she didn't miss it. Now, she could have allowed her bitterness, her anger, her frustration that she displayed in chapter 1 to completely blind her to the favor that God was showing through Boaz, but she caught it. Her open eyes gave her an open heart to hope, an open heart to hope. Where she walked in hopelessness, she saw the favor of God. And so I encourage us as we want to walk in hope in a hopeless world that we need to seek to find the Lord's favor despite the despair. Seek to find the Lord's favor despite the despair. This is just like the silver chair. If you're familiar with the story, when they would miss a sign and they would walk into despair, all of a sudden something would happen that would change the whole perspective of the group of children. They saw some of the things that they missed earlier, and they see it now, and they recognize this is what we need to do. Hope was reborn within their hearts, and this is exactly what's happening in the life of Naomi. Her language was so strong and fierce in Ruth 1, but she softens to God, and in verses 1 through 6, develops a plan that's kind of wild, and I'll explain that in a moment. But no matter what's going on in your life, just like Naomi, you may feel bitter, angry, frustrated. You might be despairing, but there are moments and glimmers that God has to show you of His favor. Do not allow your circumstances or your situations to miss what God is up to. Naomi recognized the significance, not just of Boaz being a refuge to her, but she knew in her mind, he's a redeemer. He's a kinsman. This is not coincidence. This was not an accident. Ruth didn't just randomly stumble into Boaz's field. You see, she didn't purposely go to Boaz's field. It wasn't a setup at all. She was there, and it was God's coincidental work that he was doing to bring about the plan of redemption for Naomi and Ruth. One of my favorite sayings in life is that there are no coincidences with God. He has it all together. He's putting the plan. You can write that down if you want to. It's not one of your points, but it's important to remember. There are no coincidences with God. And so if something happens in your life and you say, oh, that's a coincidence, eh, It's probably not. That's probably God doing something. And he's like, hello, wake up, wake up, wake up. I'm doing something. I don't care about the despair in your life. I'm up to something. There's a story of a guy, and I'll I'll say this really quickly because maybe you've heard it, where there was a flood in his area. And he was ready on the brink of death. And someone said, well, are you believing that God's going to save you? He's like, yeah, I've been praying all day. So he goes up to, you know, the, the, to the second floor and, and a fire rescue says, hey, come on in the boat. Come on, we're going to save you. No, 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 God's going to rescue me. I'm praying. He's going to rescue me. Okay, well, then he has another person, a helicopter, come by and say, hey, let me pick you up. I really am going to help you out. No, 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 God's got me. God's got me. And eventually the guy dies into the flood. Because he wasn't recognizing that the boat and the helicopter were from God. So often we miss what Jesus is up to because we are so despaired about our time and circumstances. We need to seek to find God's favor despite the despair. If we have eyes on all of the hopelessness around us, we will walk in despair and not hope. But this new idea of new hope, where we see this hope with open eyes, it transforms our lives and brings us to the second key. And the second key that we see in the story of Ruth to walking in hope is the key of faith. Because renewed hope renews faith. Renewed hope renews faith. Faith. Not only was Naomi in a place of hopelessness, she was in a place of faithlessness. She had no faith that the chesed of God could ever return to her. She was losing faith in the one and only true God. But now with this renewed hope from chapter 2, verse 20, she began to have a faith-filled, risky scheme develop. A plan that was absolutely, really, 100% not normative. But she took a faith-filled risk because her renewed hope renewed her faith. The plan that Naomi orchestrates in this might seem at first blush not a big deal. But I'm going to share with you that it is a big deal. How she developed this plan was faith-filled. In fact, one commentator says, By this time, Naomi's faith is strong. She has confidence in Boaz's integrity and apparently in the hidden hand of God to govern his reactions when he awakens. She is renewed in her hope and she's renewed in her faith. And one of the things that Naomi shows us is a statement that I think we can all remember is that hope fuels faith. Hope fuels fuels faith. Now I want to show you a quick little drawing that I put together that you yourself can draw. This is how wonderful it is. I'm such a terrible artist that anyone can draw the things that I draw so that you can remember the point that I'm trying to make. Hope fuels faith. Watch this. See how simple that is? You could draw that yourself, right? Very, very kindergartner-esque, right? But it's important for us, sometimes we have to have a visual representation of what we're trying to say. Hope fuels faith. She allowed this hope in her life to fuel her faith. Now, I hope you're asking the question, how in the world was this a faith-filled risk? Well, she tells Ruth to do something audacious. She says, go And clean yourself up and put on nice clothes. You're like, how's that audacious? Right? Shouldn't she be doing that anyways? Right? But the point is she's putting on perfume and nice clothing. And she's going to a man. And this is basically some sort of proposal of saying, hey, I'm here. This tradition of taking a bath and new clothes with perfume, because perfume was expensive. It wasn't normative. was usually when a woman was preparing for her wedding. She's trying to be as attractive and as beautiful as possible and smelling good because you don't ever want to hang out with someone that you're trying to flirt with when you stink really bad, right? And it's, just, it's not going to go over very well. And so she is putting on the perfume and putting on the clothes, and then she gives her some specific directions. We notice that everything that Naomi is telling Ruth, if you were to understand the Hebraic culture, everything that Naomi is telling Ruth is risqué at best, and improperly invite, inviting at worst. Ruth, if she were to, if you were to look at this separately from a Hebraic understanding, Ruth as a Moabite is going to perform this, this act of intimacy, saying, I am here, I want you to be my husband, I want you to be my redeemer. This is what she's trying to communicate. But because she's a Moabite, Boaz could possibly see this as an invitation that isn't there. He could see this as she is acting as a Moabite uh, prostitute, that she is uncovering his feet, which, I mean, sounds weird in our society, but there is a sense of intimacy that she is putting together that's not necessarily there. There's a sense of anticipation of saying, this is, I am vulnerable before you. I am saying that this is, I want you to be my husband. I want you to be the one who redeems me. This is a very big, dangerous, faith-filled moment. Because in this moment, Ruth could in fact be taken advantage of. Ruth, who is there alone with Boaz, Boaz could misread. He could completely reject her. He could say, how dare you, you offensive lady, and throw her away. Or he could take advantage of the situation where then she'd be tainted and unable to be married to anyone. If Boaz says no, she has no hope. If Boaz says yes, she is then redeemed. It's a, you might say, oh, this is a big gamble. Well, there are no gambling things with God. If God has put this together, God is putting something together for a reason. But you have to understand, this is a faith filled risk. And Naomi, because of her renewed hope, has a fueled faith that is going to go forward. Both ladies, if this happens, are putting their faith in Boaz's response. They're trusting His worthiness and His honorable nature. This is not a safe plan. I, I don't know how I can give that to you any more explicitly. This plan is not safe. It is a plan filled with faith. I want you to capture that. And that, all those different symbolisms that are going on, that saying, I want you to be my Redeemer, spread your wings around me, un- uncovering His feet, those are dangerous Dangerous things that can be misinterpreted. But both women trust the fact that Boaz is going to interpret it appropriately. Everything hinges upon Boaz's response. At the end of 6, there's this anticipation. At the end of of verse 6, what is Ruth going to do? Because Ruth, uh, even though she's a Moabitess, would totally understand what these actions could be interpreted as. She knows what she's going to, be, to mean by them if she obeys Naomi's suggestions. She understands what Naomi is saying, but she also knows very well what could happen if it's misinterpreted. Have you ever had a communication with somebody and it was completely misinterpreted? You said something that you meant one way and they totally heard it a different way? Well, this is a purposeful conversation that could go either way. So what is Ruth going to do? And then Ruth gives us the third key to walking in hope. It's the key of obedience. Obedience proves our faith. Now let's go back to Ruth 1. Ruth 1 where Mara, which she called herself, Naomi, who was pleasant, now is bitter. In that scenario, we ended with the fact that Naomi looked pretty bad in her faith. But because of Ruth's obedience and her faithfulness, not only to Naomi but to the Lord himself, we see that she had faith to go forward to the people of Israel even though they could reject her, they could kill her on sight if they wanted to, and they could ostracize Naomi completely from all community. She still had faith to go. And this faith that she had, she saw the favor of God. She saw the favor of God in her faith-filled risk of going with Naomi. So Naomi gives her this plan, this really, really, really faith-filled plan. And here's her response. Immediately, she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. Just as her mother-in-law commanded her. She walked in obedience. And her obedience proved her faith in Naomi and proved her faith in the Lord. Because at this point, we have to understand that Naomi had taught her what a kinsman redeemer is. That she would have complete understanding of the implications of this moment. She wasn't walking in there blind. She wasn't some naive little girl from Moab. She was a very, very well-educated, in the faith of Israel at this time, woman, knowing both the risks and understanding the blessing that it could bring. But she walks in obedience. Listen, you have to understand that all of this hinged upon Ruth. Her obedience was vital because even she's taking a faith with Naomi because even if she goes and does this and then she's stoned or rejected or killed, Naomi could say, I had no idea about that. What a horrible woman. She's putting her faith in Naomi, Boaz, and the Lord. But yet she still obeys. You have to capture the risky nature of her obedience. She could be killed. This is not a safe plan. She could be stoned, thrown out into the public, beaten, and killed for this moment. Because if it's misinterpreted, if it's read wrong, Boaz could totally take her life. It is not a safe plan. Yet, she proves her faith through her obedience. This idea of obedience proving faith can get us a little bit like, oh, that's a really religious statement. James talks about the importance of obeying in faith where our obedience and our walking in truth proves our faith, that it shows that we believe in who God is. Let me give you an example with this chair. Many of you are wondering, why is that chair there? Some of you might have been afraid I'd throw it because I've done that before. So let me just say, I believe, I'm going to tell you as the people here online and in person, I believe that this chair can carry my weight. I believe it. Now, if I just said, oh, this is such a good chair, I trust you. You look so nice. Someone really thought about the design. I believe that if I sit on you, you can hold my weight. But if I never sit on the chair, have I proved that I believe it? No. Not only until no one saw the legs on this, I hope. Not until I sit do I prove that I really believe that the chair can carry my weight. But often, when it comes to our idea of following Jesus, we say, you know, he's such a good God. I love him so much. Man, he's he's beautiful and majestic and wonderful. And I sing songs every Sunday and I read my Bible. But when he says, go do something, our faith is truly proven by going and doing it. See, Ruth could have said, oh, I believe you, Naomi. I have faith in your plan. But if she didn't do it, she's not proving her faith. My friends, we have got to obey. If our lives are going to be filled with more hope,